We all know how Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer goes, right? You know Comet and Cupid and Donder and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all, Rudolph? And it goes on from there. I kind of feel like that's appropriate for uh, the man that we're going to meet uh, in this um, Where's Guide, Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. Uh, it's Stephen. And the song could go something like, well, you know Peter and Paul and John and James, but do you recall the most famous martyr of all, Stephen, the first martyr? <laughs> okay, that might be a little bit silly, but Stephen was an amazing man, and a lot of us don't really know much about him. So that's what we're going to talk about in today's Bible study, uh, Stephen. felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture we're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through his word, but we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. So now we're ready to zoom all the way to Acts chapter 6. So <laughs> put on your, you know, traveling shoes here. We're moving on. So, But it's interesting, though, because in chapter 6, the focus changes pretty dramatically. We're changing from having our focus almost exclusively on Peter and John, by implication. Those two kind of went together in the first century church in Jerusalem, Peter and John, but mostly it's Peter doing the speaking that we find up till now. And all of a sudden in chapter 6 of Acts, the focus changes to someone else that we're going to meet, and we're going to spend a few weeks uh, focusing on this guy because he becomes um, someone special in the church. He was not an apostle. Uh, he didn't follow Christ during those three years. But certainly he was uh, familiar with Jesus. He was acquainted with him. He obviously watched and saw him. And at some point, he at some point, remember now we've had we've had the uh, Pentecost preaching of Peter, where three thousand people came to the Lord. We had his subsequent teaching and Solomon's colonnade on the temple, where another two thousand people became Christians and believers. And then in chapter five. Uh, we, we see that they're talking about even more people coming. And that's kind of where Luke picks up the story here. In the first 
verse of chapter 6. And and we're going to look at that in a minute, but, but somewhere along the line, this person, Stephen, became a believer. We're not sure when, where, how, the circumstances, but at some point he joins the believers in Jerusalem in that first century. So let's look at it, chapter 6, verse 1, and Luke picks up the theme that he has kind of shown, it's a theme that has kind of weaved its way through the first six chapters now of Acts. And he says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the first thing I want to look at here is Luke's continuing with this theme of the church growing and more and more people becoming believers in and around Jerusalem. Uh, Remember, in chapter 1, there were 120 believers, men and women, who were following Christ. In chapter 2, Pentecost, we have 3,000 more men who become believers, and they don't tell us how many women or youth there might have been. In chapter 4, we find 2,000 more men that are joining the church and becoming believers. Again, we don't know how many women and youth there might have been on top of those. And in chapter 5, Luke says, he makes the point, he says, more and more, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. That's in verse 14 of chapter 5. So there again, more and more and more are coming. And then now here in chapter 6, he says, when the number of disciples was increasing, the number of disciples was increasing. So Luke just wants us to know something here. What he wants us to know is that the, the gospel is spreading like wildfire in Jerusalem, that people are becoming believers left and right, that there is a revival going on um, have you ever been to a real old-fashioned revival, like tent meeting, they used to call them? And they would have them, remember, it would be like you'd have a Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday at church, and it'd be every night. Let's talk about Billy Graham. That's what he started with was those tent revivals. He'd come into a town, he'd be there Monday through Saturday or whatever, and he would be preaching every single night. When he and, came to Los Angeles, they wouldn't let him leave. Yeah, he was there for I think for the uh, Youth for Christ or something, which is an original thing in L.A. I was a little kid myself, but I remember. You you were there at the time. Yes, I was there. I remember my parents were just stuck to that television, and I and I kept saying, "What are we talking about? This guy screaming about Jesus, this and Jesus, and we're Christians, we know, which we were not." That's where Blue and that Zamperini got saved. Yeah. That's L.A. But that that L.A. Crusade was one that was what really kind of put him yeah. on the map, you know. That, and you're right; he just kept going and going and going. On television every night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you've ever been to one, I mean, you you want to keep going back and back every night because it, it, there's something right. There's I like to call it a spiritual invigoration. There's a spiritual invigoration that goes on in that kind of setting that. You don't get anywhere else. And, you know, the Spirit of God is there. And the believers are coming, and they have the Holy Spirit within them. And you're looking into God's Word, and you're hearing God's Word preached and sung and prayed. And there's this spiritual invigoration that is just so 
wonderful and so exciting and so fulfilling. And when you leave there, you just want to, you want to feel it again. So the next night you go back. And so this is, you know, they were having a revival in Jerusalem in the first century church. People were getting saved. People were coming to the Lord. It was, it was a hard time because you're still under the thumb of Rome and you still had the religious leaders and the, all of that that was going on. But what a what, the spiritual invigoration that you must have felt when you woke up in the morning, went through the day, seeing and hearing all of this and people coming to Christ and, and, and faith. So this is, Luke wants us to know that, you know, there was a revival going on. People were coming to Christ um, in amazing numbers at the time. So, but, but when things start going good for God, who gets upset about that? Satan doesn't like it. Right. You start doing things for God that the Lord is anointing and all of a sudden, you know, something pops up and it starts making it hard for you. And sometimes that's a good way to know that you're doing the right thing when it becomes difficult and things start being put in your way for no good reason, because it's a spiritual battle. Right. There's a spiritual battle going on for you and your heart and your life, and especially your service for God. We start serving God in a way that's anointed and ordained and blessed. Satan tries to put obstacles in your way. He tries to divert your attention. He tries to, you know, I mean, this is a very small example, but as an example, you're sitting in church and you're hearing uh, the preacher speak and you're getting moved, you're getting, and you're learning, you're growing, and, and you're getting turned on uh, spiritually by what's happening. And all of a sudden you think, do I want to stop at McDonald's on the way home? <laughs> oh, your stomach won't, you know. <laughs> and you're like, well, wait a minute, how? You know, that's just Satan saying, no, don't, don't listen so closely. Let's think about lunch. <laughs> but these things, so, so guess what? Satan doesn't like what's going on in Jerusalem here. And so he's already tried two different things to stop it and to interrupt it. The first thing he did was he tried persecution. He had Peter and John and the disciples arrested. Not once, twice, three times, the prison break, the flogging. They tr he tried persecution. Don't talk in this man's name. Stop it. Don't do it anymore. But what happened? They went right back to doing it, and the result was the church kept growing. Okay, that doesn't work. So Satan says, okay, plan B. Let's try corruption. Let's try to put people in the church who are not quite so, you know, morally. I mean, they're wonderful people, and they're Christians. They're saved, but maybe I can use them... Remember, Jesus said to Peter, when Peter said, well, surely you're not going to die. And, and Jesus said, get behind me, not Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because as good as Peter was, Satan still could get his ear. And so as good as Ananias and Sapphira probably were, he got their ear and he wanted to, and he was trying to bring corruption into the church. And we know what happened to them. And after that happened, even though people were fearful, it says, remember what it says in chapter 5? Nevertheless, the church kept growing. So plan A didn't work for Satan. Plan B didn't work for Satan. So what is plan C? Plan C is, we find it here in chapter 6, dissension. So persecution didn't work. Corruption didn't work. How about dissension? How about if inside the church 
they don't agree on something. Now, sometimes churches can be really strong against outside forces, but that same church can fall apart from dissension within their own ranks, can't they? Very much like a country can, a country can do the same thing. And so here he, Satan says, let's do dissension. Remember what they're doing? Remember what we talked about Barnabas and what he did? He sold his property. He gave everything to the believers, and they distributed to each one who had need. And then Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to do the same, and they lied about it. But there was a communal type of living at the time where uh, we bring money into the church as a whole, and then we distribute to people what they have need. And they weren't really distributing money so much. They were getting money, but they were distributing food, and they were distributing needs that people had to help them meet their needs. I'm sure if someone had a need for money, they would give money too. But but they the, the, the idea was we love each other, we love the Lord, and let's just share everything. If you happen to be blessed and I happen not to be blessed, then you bring in and we share together and you bless me and you help me and it's all wonderful and it's all hunky-dory. Except that one thing comes into play eventually, invariably, every time, and that is we're not perfect. If we were perfect, then it would work. Someday in God's kingdom, we'll have that. But until that, we still have a human nature, and Satan can still get in our heads. And this is what happened here. How many years after the crucifixion of Satan? This is very soon afterwards. This is very soon afterwards. Yes, exactly. And that's what we're coming into here. Yes. Right. And so this is very soon afterwards. Yeah, Chuck. Uh, a lot of churches tried to mimic this model. And the model wasn't so good because eventually they ran out of money and they had to get, Paul had to bring them offerings from all over the world. Correct. Because they, you know, they had all quit their jobs. They thought Jesus was coming any day. And so they ran out of money and they didn't have the food to distribute anymore. And, you know, so it wasn't a good model, but because of what you just said. Human nature. Yeah, eventually what would happen is Paul would bring to the church in Jerusalem an offering that was came from, like, the church in Antioch. What, what happens eventually is the focus of the Christian mission moves from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Antioch becomes, like, this mother church. And Antioch, the church in Antioch, is the church that sends out Paul on his missionary journeys, not the church in Jerusalem. And uh, and things the, the things are happening in Jerusalem and all the excitement we're talking about here. Eventually, they have that kind of thing going on in Antioch as well. And so they weren't like both co-equally doing it as a spread, but Antioch became more the focus. Yeah, Antioch becomes more when Paul Paul launches from Antioch, and uh, I think it's Barnabas that brings him to Antioch and says, uh, I'm really pretty sure it's Barnabas. Barnabas comes and says to uh, Paul, Paul, you got to come to Antioch, man. There's stuff happening up there, and you don't want to miss it. Come up there with me. And so they go, and that's kind of where they establish themselves. But in Jerusalem, you still have James as the leader of the church, Jesus' brother in Jerusalem. He continues to be there. Peter continues to be there. John continues to be there. They continue to be a very strong, important church. But the Christian mission kind of 
that, that goes into the world kind of spreads from Antioch, not from Jerusalem eventually. So what Chuck says there is really quite true. So here they are, and everything's all wonderful and good, but now, uh, because people aren't perfect, um, something is happening that is threatening to cause dissension and anger and people being upset. And what is it? The Grecian Jews are complaining against the Hebraic Jews because the Grecian Jews' widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So you need food. The church has the food. The church is distributing the food. Part of this communal thing. We all line up to get our food. But apparently there was some kind of a pecking order, right? Where uh, some people got to the front of the line every day and some people were at the end of the line every day. And even though there was probably no sign up that said these people get first and these people get last, it was just kind of an understood thing. So what is the difference between a Grecian Jew and a Hebraic Jew? from the original line of the, of the Hebrews. But are they living in Jerusalem then, the Greek Jews? No, that's exactly the point. Probably not. What's probably happening here is you have what they're calling the Hebraic Jews are Jewish people who are from more the local community, from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Palestine, and they speak the language. That's the important thing here. They speak Aramaic, which was the language at the time that common that that the Jews were speaking to each other was Aramaic, uh, maybe some Hebrew, but it was generally common language in that day was Aramaic. But the Grecian Jews were Jews who didn't live in this area. Probably, they probably lived outside Jerusalem and Judea in this place proper. And they did not speak Aramaic because they were in parts of the world where probably the Jewish population was not the majority of the population. They lived close to Rome or they lived in other places. And so although uh, they were Jewish, they spoke the language of that place. And the language of the world that day was Greek. And so they were called Hellenistic Jews which has the connotation of like worldly, right? We speak God's language because we're God's people. You speak the world's language. We're of God and you're kind of of the world. We're all Jews, but, you know, if you had to choose which one to be, the Hebraic Jews are, and the Grecian Jews, you know, you're just not quite of that same love. And even though they come to Christ, they're all believers now. These are all Jewish believers. They're Grecian Jewish believers, Hebraic Jewish believers. They're all Christians. But even in that environment and in that context, they're still, well, you know, we're still kind of above you because we speak the language and we live here where Jesus lived and where Jesus spoke and you're an outsider. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we live in America, we speak English. And, and we're Christians, and someone else comes in, and they maybe don't speak English, but they're Christians, and they come to our area, but they only speak, let's say, Russian, for example. And maybe in some churches, they're made to feel kind of second-class citizens, because even though they're Christians, 
they don't speak our language, and so they get pushed to the back. Maybe it's not even on purpose. Maybe it's just easier not to talk to them, you know, because they don't speak the language. It's more difficult. Whatever was going on here, there were there was a pecking order. Well, they were probably sending the food out to them. They weren't coming to their to their. Place. That's possible too, but even still. There was. Well, that's what I mean. So it was easy for them to say, "Wow, we're, we're we, you know, we needed all the food." Over. We ran out before we got to you, you know. We what we can, kind of thing. But how in the world Paul hadn't even been sent out yet? How did these people get converted to Christianity? Well, they came for Pentecost. Oh. They came for oh, Passover. Remember, during Passover and Pentecost, all the Jews within a certain area would come to Jerusalem to celebrate right. those. So they came in Jerusalem maybe during Pentecost, and all of a sudden they're called up. Remember, we're saying there's a revival going on in Jerusalem, and people are getting, they're coming from outside, you know, just like if Billy Graham is here in Cincinnati, but people are coming from West Virginia and Indiana and Kentucky and all over, and they still get the same blessing, but they're from outside. So that's how it happened. And the Hellenistic Jews even had a different Bible, because they were using the Septuagint. Yeah, 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 right. They were probably considered very different. Yeah, eventually, I don't know if it would be happened this early or not, Mike, maybe, but I'd have to look at the date. But eventually what would happen is because so many people couldn't read Hebrew, that there, it was actually, it was actually some, I'm going to say, I have to look it up, an emperor in Rome or so, someone who had some authority eventually said, well, that's not good. And actually did it for himself because, right. as I recall the story, it was whoever was like in charge of like the huge library in Rome, for example. Alexandria. Alexandria. Okay, right. The, the library in Alexandria. Okay. And and he couldn't read Hebrew. Right. And a lot of people there couldn't read it. All of the wisdom of the world. Correct. And he had heard about the Jews and this wisdom that was in the Torah, so he conscripted to have actually seventy-two people come to Alexandria and, and translate the Bible from the Torah at the it time. And so that's why it was Septuagint, because it's 70. But it was 72, it was 12, it was 12 from, first, my math, six from each child, and uh, translated into Greek. And that's how the Septuagint, and that's what became in general use then throughout the Greek world. And a lot of the quotes that we get in the New Testament are from the Septuagint. That's Correct. why they don't always line up exactly with the Old Testament. Correct. And eventually it would also translate into Latin, which would be called the Vulgate, which would come also. But right, exactly what Mike said is right. They wanted to understand the Hebrew. They couldn't read it, so they had it translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, which is what most of the people in the world eventually came to be able to understand the Bible was because of the Greek. Because Greek was like English today. Greek was the language of the world. It was even though you're from somewhere else, you knew how to speak Greek or knew how to read Greek because that's what everyone was speaking in, in the world at the time, which is, again, what was the problem with the Hellenist Jews. They were seen as more worldly. So uh, apparently, you know, I, I don't know what the pecking order was, but I can imagine it was probably like, okay, men get served first, <laughs> and then women, and, and maybe it was like Hebraic men, Grecian men, Hebraic women, Grecian women, the kids, da, da, and like the very last group to get their food was the Grecian widows. You know? It was widows. This is what they say, is that 
they were because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution is what there we find in verse one. So, you know, it's like, hey, all these other people, they're getting like chicken breasts and chicken thighs and our widows are just getting wings. I mean, come on, that's not. I mean, if you, if you like wings, God bless you, but I don't understand. It's like way too much work for way too little meat. I'm sorry. Uh, or whatever it was, more than likely they were like probably running out of food. It's like all you know, all the meat is gone. Oh, you got to have the collard greens. You know, that's all we got left. You know that kind of thing. Whatever it was, though, the point of the fact is that it was causing dissension in the church, and this was not good, was it? You can't have dissension in the church. So let's go on and see what happens. What's their answer? Verse two. So the twelve, and this is interesting. The twelve. Luke. Luke is the only one who refers to the disciples as the twelve. He does it in Luke, and he does it in Acts. He's the only one who does it, but he says he says the twelve. You know who the twelve are, the twelve. Now, obviously, this isn't Judas, but they replaced Judas, remember, with Matthias. So he's one of the twelve. Now. Um, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together. Now, I, don't, I can't imagine they had all 5,000 disciples. I, I, maybe it was, you know, there was an inner circle. I'm, gonna, I'm like, there's... There's probably a board, okay? You can't have Christians together without having a board of some kind, right? You gotta have, you got a church, you gotta have a board. So it all goes all the way back to the twelve disciples. They had a board, so they have called the board of deacons or the board of elders, whoever they were, and they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, which is true, isn't it? I mean, ministers need to do ministry. They can't be bogged down with all the other stuff that you need to have to have a functioning church. But if they do all of that and get bogged down in that, then where do they have the time and the energy to study and to learn and to prepare to do ministry? So what they're saying is we need to do ministry uh, we can't just, we can't neglect the ministry, we can't neglect the word of God to wait on tables. They're not denigrating waiting on tables. Waiting on tables is very important. Waiting on tables needs to be done. They don't say here, we don't need, we don't need to do this anymore. They didn't say, look, if it's a hassle, let's just stop doing it. What they said was, let's figure out a way it can be done. But we can't, we as the as the pastors, we as the ministers, we as the preachers and teachers, that's not something we can take on. We can't take that on too. It'd be just like here, you know, if we asked David and, and uh, Scott and the ministry people, well, you guys have to prepare the food on Wednesday nights and you have to serve and you have to clean up afterwards and you have to, you have to do the vacuuming and the dusting and you have to, I mean, how could they... Yeah. <laughs> How could they possibly do ministry if they're doing all of that? So they need helpers. And so that's basically what uh, the church's decision is. Let's find helpers to wait on tables, and then we can be free to do ministry. And, and this is something that can be handled by other people. Remember when Moses was visited by his father-in-law Jethro, and, and, Moses, and Jethro said to Moses, you can't keep doing this, Moses. You're gonna, 
You're going to burn out. You, you're, trying, you're taking on too much. You need to bring other people on who can help you and do the, do the administration. This church just hired a new minister to come in. What's his job? Administration. He's going to take that burden off of you know, Scott and David and the, the other minister. That's going to be his main focus, the administration. So that's what they're looking for. We need to get people who can help us. Now, don't think that they're... Although the, the, the context here is food and waiting on tables, but don't think that that's all it is. Because the idea here of the tables is that they weren't just tables where food was served, but they're also money tables too. So the implication, the broader implication here is, yes, you need to be involved in the distribution of the food and taking, but you're also going to be involved in the taking in of the money and the distributing of the money and the finances and all of that. Uh, when I was a pastor of my church, uh, I wanted nothing to do with the money. Don't even tell me. I don't even want to, if there's like an emergency and we have no money, tell me, you know, but I don't want to know how much we have, how much we don't have. I don't want to know how much we're getting, who's giving what. I don't, I want to be removed from that completely because that is not what I'm called to do. The, the, the money part of it is not my gift. So someone, so that's the idea here. We're going to do ministry. You guys take care of the food and you guys take care of the money. You guys take care of all. So this is a more encompassing job than just serving. Oh, nothing wrong with just serving food. People need to serve food and they're important. But this was a, this was a broader context. Let's go on here. So verse uh, three, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom we will turn this responsibility over to them. So here we get the job description uh, in terms of what qualifications these helpers needed to have to be chosen among these seven. Now just think of this. There are thousands of believers, more than 5,000 now, thousands probably doubled to 10,000 at, at least. Plus you have women and children. They're just looking for men here. But there were thousands and thousands of men. But they got to pick the top seven. I'm going to pick the top seven here. Or maybe they come up with a different strategy. We'll look at that in a minute. But, but in order, you can't just go out and just say, I used to do my Bible like this. I used to say, okay, God, what do you want me to read today? <laughs> That's not a good way to study your Bible, okay? Uh, it's not going to work. You got, but, but that's the way some people do. You couldn't just go out. You couldn't put names in a hat and just draw. You What do they say? They say, choose seven men from among you who are what? Known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. So here's the job description. They have to be full of the Spirit, and they have to be full of wisdom. Full of the Spirit speaks for itself. You know, they're Spirit-led and Spirit-guided. Full of wisdom. The idea of wisdom there is that they can take uh, their Christian uh, belief and their Christian understanding and apply that to everyday life. You know, if you have wisdom today in your life, hopefully what you're taking is basically means you're living as a Christian and the decisions you make and the actions you take, it's informed by your faith. Yeah. Uh, this translation also says they're well-respected. Well-respected. Yep. That's good, too. That's another one. Good reputation. Anybody else have anything else? Good reputation. Now, the important thing is, though, is who decides? They 
They, who, who they? The board. The pastors. So the, the 12 are not deciding. See, the pastors aren't making those decisions. You know, when in our church here, when we are choosing people to serve, the pastors aren't assigning them, right? We have a committee. We choose among ourselves. So the choice is made by the by the congregation, by the board, not by the leadership of the church at that time. So they were saying, hey, choose among yourselves. Whom will you pick? So now how do they determine? How do they choose? What do, how do they know who the seven men should be? Well, they've been given a list. They have to be full of the Spirit, and they have to be full of wisdom. So, okay, so the 12 have given the board the goal. These are the, these are the men you have to choose. So how do they know to pick, who to pick? They've been watching each other. They've been listening to each other. They know. They know. If we got together in this church and we said, pick seven people, we actually do it in this church. Who are going to be the elders? And the pastors don't decide. We nominate people. They open it up. They say, we need an elder or two. Who do you guys nominate? Who do we nominate? We don't draw names out of a hat, do we? We say, this is someone I've watched. This is someone I've heard. This is someone that I know. And I know this person would be a great elder. And then, you know, they go through a selection process. But, you know, we know, don't we? We know who the leaders are. We know who the ones are who have a kind of life that we want to be in positions of leadership to advise us as a church and to advise our ministry, we happen to have one in this in the Sunday school class. Mike, I wouldn't mention who it is, but it's Mike. But anyway, but obviously, obviously, if we were picking people in this in this class, you know, Mike would be on the, one of the top people, wouldn't he? Because we know what kind of life he lives and the way he walks and talks. So that's what they were doing here. Okay, so let's go on. This is this is the story. Okay, we'll turn this, and he say we will turn this responsibility over to them. So you know, it's. It's not like just pick someone. It was important that they pick the right people, showing again how important this was. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse five. This proposal pleased the whole group. That is a great idea. So yeah, well, you, we yeah, go go and do it. So they did, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Interesting that Stephen is the first one on the list. And interesting that he's the only one they give a description of. When you go through your New Testament, every single time there's a list of the apostles. Every single time. If Peter is one of them, Peter is first. Every single time. 
Now, they could have chosen anyone to put first. You know, here's a list of the apostles. Here's a list. Here's the people who went. Here's the people who were there. Here's the people. If Peter was there, Peter is always the first one listed every single time. And Judas is always the last one listed for obvious reasons. But there was something about Peter that just set in. All 12 of them were, or 11 of them, 11 of the 12 were wonderful people. Chosen by God to be an apostle. My goodness. Something special about every single one. But Peter, there was just something extra special about Peter. These seven men all met the criteria. They were all full of the spirit. They're all full of wisdom. Out of all the thousands of people they could have picked, they chose these seven. These seven were all special people. But Stephen, there was something extra special about him. He's the first one on the list. And he's the only one who gets a description. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So here we have Stephen's qualifications. You have to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Well, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And they added another thing. Not only that, but he was also full of faith. We want the people in leadership positions to be full of faith. I mean, if they're not full of faith, then they can't help me. Right? They can't help us. So they're saying, not only is he all that, but he's all of this too. So there was something really extra special about Stephen. Another thing here is that uh, all seven of these men have names, have Greek names. All seven of them. And so they were, well, six of them were the Grecian Jews. One of them wasn't even born a Jew. Nicholas was from Antioch. He was a convert to Judaism. He wasn't born a Jew. He was Greek from the day he was born. So what's so interesting about this is that the Greek Jews come to the Hebraic Jews or to the group which the majority of the group were Hebraic Jews. So the minority Grecian Jews come to the Hebraic Jews and they make a complaint. They lodge a complaint. You're not being fair to us and to our widows. You're not being fair. You're not doing this right. You've been, you know, you've had a bias against us. Whether it was true or not, that was the perception. You have a bias against the Grecian Jews as Hebraic Jews. So by this decision, the Hebraic Jews are saying, you're right. We were wrong. We shouldn't have done that. And we didn't mean to do it, maybe, but if, in, you know, intention isn't what's important always. What's important is what is actually happening and the perception of our intention. So the Hebraic Jews say, you know, you're right. We're sorry. We did it wrong. And so you know what? We're going to put only Grecian Jews in charge of this. So they picked the top seven Grecian Jews to run this program. Now, that was risky. Because if the Grecian Jews, they're in charge. We're going to turn this over to you. You run it. So now they have all the power. The power paradigm has shifted from the Hebraic Jewish believers to the Grecian Jewish believers, because now all the only people in charge are the Grecian 
Jews, believers, Jewish, uh, Grecian Jewish Christians. Stephen was he? He was he was not a uh, he was Stephen is a Grecian name is a Greek name yeah so he would have been one of them he would have been a, a, one of the Grecian Jews as well yeah they were they were the ones who raised the original complaint yes exactly so what they're saying is what they're saying is to show you there is no bias mm -hmm. oh, yeah. well, like you to prove it to you we're putting you in charge yeah. but it was risky because. That group could have said, well, okay, we're going to get you back. We're going we're to we're teach you a lesson. You did that to us. We're going to see how you like it. We're going to do it right back to you. And it was risky. But you know what? They did it because they trusted that that wouldn't happen. They trusted their brothers. That if they said, we're sorry, you're right, we were wrong, you guys do it to make it right. And they trusted that those men would do it right, and they wouldn't hold a grudge. Because you know what? What is powerful? What's more powerful? Revenge or forgiveness? Forgiveness. Yes. Forgiveness is so much more powerful. Revenge accomplishes nothing. Because you get into revenge, and then you know what it ends up you get? You get the Hatfields and McCoys. And you got your revenge on me. I'm going to get my revenge on you. But you forgive... And you can move on, and you can create a new relationship that's healed and healing. So that's what's going on here. Okay, so notice here, so let's go on then. Um, verse uh, 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. What is it about laying on of hands? We still do it in the church today, don't we? Mike, I don't know, did they do that to you when you became an elder? Was there a laying on of hands or anything Not like that? Okay, but, but when you have a, like a new minister, usually there's a laying on of hands to pray for him or her. If there's a missionary going out into the mission field, usually there's a laying on of hands to... When people leave, I mean, just recently had a couple of people leave and there was a laying on of hands to congregation. Exactly. Um, I know in the I know in the ordination process of American Baptist churches, which I, it took me two and a half years to get my ordination, and I told Jan, and she agreed with me. I think eventually. When you get through to the end and you jump through all the hoops you have to jump through and you do all the things you have to do, and at the end, like if you just get to the end, they just give it to you because you survived. You survived it. One one of the things we had to do is we had to be. Uh, it's a two day thing. We had to be psychoanalyzed by a, a psychologist. Yeah, it went to Columbus and day one you took this 400 uh, question multiple choice uh, te uh, tests, like some are kind of obvious, like like one of the things might have been true or false. They, they're all true or false, I think. And it was, uh, uh, I hear voices in my head telling, <laughs> tell, telling me to do things. I thought I better put no on that one. Uh, and then the next day you're with another counselor and then they tell you, I think, I think what the, like American Baptist churches, they just want to make sure that you know, they're not bringing someone into the ministry who, you know, might be 
you know, <laughs> cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And, um, or I was afraid they would come back to me and they were going to say, Greg, you know, based on this, um, have you ever thought about becoming a truck driver? <laughs> this might be a suggestion. Was there? Okay. But my point is, at the end of the ordination process, when you finally, 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 finally get to the end, Jan got mad during my, uh, where they have you, you like they all the churches bring in uh, representatives for your ordination. Uh, you do an ordination paper, and then you have to defend it. And what happens is all the churches you send out your ordination paper to all the churches, and then they have people review them, review review it. And then they come to one mass interrogation, basically, and they all have your paper, and they all get to say, Greg, on uh, item number five here, line six, you said, da -da, and then you have to tell them why you said that. And uh, at the end of that, Jen was like, she was getting so mad. She was so angry. She goes, these people, why don't they just, it was like a two and a half hour thing. But my point of all that is to say, at the end of it, when they finally say, you're, you're ordained, there's a laying on of hands and a prayer for you for whatever the Lord has in store for you in the future. So this is something that we take from, from here. This comes from Acts and what they did here. And what is it about the laying on of hands? What, why is that an important thing to do? Because it's very spiritual. Yeah. It's a spirit moving through every single person onto the person infected. So it's multiple... Multiple points of contact that can, the I've been on both ends of that. I've been on the receiving end of it. I've been on the giving end of it. And you get something special from both ends. When you're laying your hand on someone, you feel there's some energy there. You know, when you're receiving it, there's some energy there. Now we're not. None of us are Christ. We're not. We're not like giving. You know, we're not like giving the spirit. But. I think there. I find four things that, in my experience, I think the laying on of hands uh, says. I think one is an endorsement of that person. When you lay your hands on that person, you're endorsing. Endorsing. You're saying that I'm endorsing. You are qualified for whatever your God is calling you to. So it's an endorsement. The second thing is it's an empowerment, not a spiritual empowerment, but it's a human empowerment. It's like you know, I, as a in my own human ability, and empowering you that you can do this. I'm empower. I'm giving you. I'm 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 pointing you to this position. So I'm endorsing you. I'm empowering you or appointing you, and then also encouragement. I'm encouraging you. You can do this. I'm your cheerleader. I'm encouraging you. You can do this. You can make it. Because I'm telling you, no one goes to a church, no one goes into ministry, no one goes on the mission field feeling prepared. Nobody. Isn't it a sign of support as well? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. I think that goes in with encouragement. Encouragement and support. I'm here for you. You can do this. I can, I'm, I'm behind you. I'm with you. And no one who goes to the mission field or to a church or any kind of ministry position feels adequate or ready or prepared. So that encouragement and support is important. Um, I used to work for the Cincinnati Reds, and I was there for four opening days, and uh, and I was in charge of certain things on the field. And I got to say, I never felt prepared for a single one of them. It was like it can't be opening day tomorrow because I'm not ready. I need two more weeks. And always like about three weeks before opening day, I'd get a twitch in my eye. It's like <laughs> this nervous twitch, you know, because I'm not ready. 
so these, you know, you never feel ready, but this laying on of hands just it, it encourages you. It's an endorsement. It's an empower, empowerment, an appointment, and it's an encouragement. And it's also, I think, an example because that's what Jesus did. You know, he laid hands on. Not always, but he sent his disciples out to do the same thing. He told them. He, uh, and healed people in my name. So, um, so it wasn't just Jesus that did that, but his, his followers as well. If you if you look closely at the passage where I think it's in um, Mark ten, where Jesus called the little children and put them before the apostles, you know, the, these you have to be like the little children. It says specifically that Jesus laid his hands on those children. You know, so it's an encouragement. It's uh, an empowerment is an endorsement and it's an example, and that's why we do it, and that's why they did it. So, Craig, I was going to say, when you yeah. lay on hands, there's something different about the physical connection when you're praying with someone. It's just, it's just different. I don't know how to describe it. Well, and you can sometimes feel a response from the person that you're praying for. They're, they're, you know, physically affected by the prayer, and then that just, you know, it's just a, a I don't know, it brings the Holy Spirit to life in a way that we don't. Even not on a spiritual level, although maybe some people would say it's a spiritual level, there's a power in touching people. There's a power of touch. I don't know, you know, God made us to be people who, and that's why one of the reasons that this doggone pandemic is so terrible because we can't. I've never hugged before. And we need that. We need that touch. And we can't even smell at each other. There's no way to give encouragement. It's terrible. For us who are Christians, who like to touch because... But and this is, this is more of a scientific or unscientific thing. They did a thing, uh, they did some research in a hospital, or a couple of hospitals, where they wanted... They, they were finding that like babies who were ill in like the intensive care unit, when they were held more, they got better more quickly. And they also found this to be true in some adult people that when the family was there and they, they, they so they started doing some, they had, they had the placebo group where they didn't touch them, like the medical staff. They purposely said, don't touch them. I mean, obviously, it was emergency, but, but generally speaking, don't touch them. Then they had another group, and they said, touch them a lot. Don't tell them that we're doing this, that they weren't supposed to know. We have yeah, this focus group and this group, but this group, touch them. And you don't even tell them. Just say, just going to touch, you know, just I'm talking to you, whatever. And they found every single time the group that got touched got better faster. Well, they're saying these children in school who have to wear these masks and do all this kind of stuff are greatly are greatly being injured. In, uh, you know, not just, but their emotional development and everything else is being kind of retarded because they can't they can't they can't uh, read facial expressions. Yeah, and you remember the mom look. I'm assuming they're not hugging in school either. Right. They're missing that touch. I mean, you know, when kids are in school, I mean, I know the teachers would hug them and other parents. Any support that way. It's hard now. So touch is important. It was important then. And and what Mike says is true. When you touch someone, it's something more. I don't know why. but And it's proven scientifically. And certainly spiritually, the same would be true. This is not people. Of course, you guys know I'm... 
therapy dog person. We did an experiment with our therapy dogs in the hospital. We had about seven dogs sitting around with their owners, and we had doctors, nurses, whoever wanted to come. They would get their blood pressure you know, tested at the door, see what it was. Then they were allowed to come in and pet the dogs, and they could stay as long as they wanted. But before they left, they had to get their blood pressure tested again. 40 points less. 20 points less. Blood pressure went down. Every single time. Every single time when they got to pet the dogs. So it just touches, you know. So therapy dogs are important, people. They really are. We love ours. Okay, so that's it for today. Wonderful. Thank you. We'll come back to, let's see, uh, Acts chapter 6 next week. Can I ask you a quick question? Yes. Is this the first diaconate board? The first? Oh, you mean the first? Oh, well, there's some question about that. Uh, I, if, you, if you go back to the original language, the word here translated as distribution, and the word translated as wait on in the Greek is diakonia and diakoneo, from which we get the word deacon. So some people say, yes, this is the first deacon board. Other people say, later on, especially like Stephen and others, it's their, their responsibility become much more than what you would consider a deacon to be. Yeah. Uh, and so some people say, yes, this was the first deacon board. Some people say, no, this was just a special emergency need, and this was the way to address that need. So there's some speculation, but because the words diakonia and diakoneo are specific here, some people say they were the first deacons. And the qualifications are the, <laughs> the qualifications are the same. Well, yeah. what does the, is that, that mean 10? What does diaconate mean? Is it 10? It means people who wait on others, no, basically. Is it a number? Does it refer to a number? No. Because, okay. No. Well, I, I, yeah, okay. I'm just thinking they wouldn't have chosen all Greek Jews to be the diaconate. That's another good point. That's another good so point. So I think, yeah, this was just there, there's some disagreement on that point. So, All right, guys. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.